The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. I'm Zach Childs, and welcome to the True Tone Lounge. Today, our guest is Tyler Shirelli. Yeah. So Tyler grew up in the Kansas City area. His father was a professional musician, Mm -hmm. and uh, he started off playing drums, and in 2010, he made the fateful choice to to move to Nashville. Uh, A few years later, he was playing in uh, Florida Georgia Line, uh, became their band leader. Uh, He just recently... Uh, yeah. you know, gave his uh, notice to Florida Georgia <coughs> Line uh, as he wants to transition into uh, studio work. Yeah, studio so work. So we man. thought this was the perfect time to have Tyler as a guest. So thank you for being on the show, Tyler. Zach, thanks for having me, man. It's an honor. It's yeah. awesome. It's awesome. So tell us about uh, starting off as a drummer and, yeah. uh, and, and, and tell us about your dad, you know, what type of you know, gigs he was playing and such. Totally. Um, my dad... Uh, from the time he was a kid, played guitar, and grew up in Memphis, and you know loved R and B, old country, and whatnot. And uh, it's funny as I got older, he we'd go through like pictures, and he'd show me all the guitars he wished he still had and whatnot. And and now that I play guitar, I appreciate that. It's a, it's a lot of fun to talk about. But uh, he grew up and moved to Kansas City, went to college, and uh, after college, he uh, started working for the government and uh, for Health and Human Services and whatnot, and would do that until he retired, but his passion for music never left, so he always played professionally as well in different bands. And I'm not good at math, but I would say it was like 19, I was born in 85, it's like 1990. Uh, He and some good buddies of his got together in our basement and started this band called Poker Face. And it was like a 90s country cover band back in the day when you know, live music was prominent. You could play all the time, and they gigged every weekend uh, all over the Midwest and, uh, and actually did really well for it. Came down to Nashville and made a record. In fact, I ran into Bruce Boughton yesterday at XTS, and I was like, you played on my dad's band's record. And obviously I know who Bruce is, and it was really fun to share that story with him. Um, but yeah, <clears throat> I will never forget sitting on the steps in my parents' basement, and I saw the drums. And it was like, that's it. Uh, love. I was in love with it. I didn't even know why. I just like, I've always loved music. It was always around. But Mike Shard, their drummer, had this beautiful 70s Ludwig kit. Uh, and it was in mint condition. He always took care of it. And it just was like, had a halo around it. <laughs> and uh, he noticed. He was really aware, and he noticed my infatuation that very first day. And he was like, hey, Phil. My dad's name is Phil. He was like, uh, you mind if I just leave my drums here for the week? Like, I, you know, I'm not going to need them. And he was like, Tyler, if you just want to beat on them, you're more than welcome to. And every day after school, I'd come home and wail on them. And they taped blocks of the pedals. And he was so sweet. And that was it. It was over. Like, that was, it was all in from there. And uh, I think it was the next Christmas, my parents bought me my first kit started taking lessons, and I carried that all the way through college. Uh, got a scholarship for percussion, 
and like went to school to be a drummer, which I don't do anymore. <laughs> yeah. So how does the how does the guitar come in? Yeah, man. It was I was I don't know. It was like junior high, high school. Uh, I was doing jazz bands and taking lessons, and there were competitions, and started looking at college. And it started to not be the escape that it was playing drums. Like, that was just something I did for fun. Like, I didn't really think about vocation in it. Uh, you know, I knew, like, every time I'd get Modern Drummer Magazine, I was like, I want to go play, play music and be a session player and play on the records. But I never, like, thought about it. And then the reality of it started to hit <clears throat> as I got a little older. And I would sneak into my folks' basement, and my dad had this black Les Paul uh, that his guitar player had given him, which I do still have. And uh, I would just get it out and just fiddle with it. It just, I don't know, I just, it was something, I, I still, I wanted music to remain, like, romantic, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so I would just, like, get the guitar out and just kind of fuss with it. And he was like, yeah, play, you play the Les Paul. Like, I'm, I'm a Strat guy, play the Les Paul. Yeah. So had the drums stopped, stopped being romantic? Or, I mean, was, um, it, was it kind of the, the, the challenge of a new instrument? What, what was it? You know? I think it was... I don't know. I've never really thought about that before. I think what it was, too, is uh, I wanted to learn how to make those sounds. My dad got really into Stevie Ray Vaughan, and John Mayer had just come out. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, like, I like the emotion of that. And drums had lost a little bit of its luster. I was getting bored with it. Not that I had learned by any stretch everything I needed to. It wasn't that, oh, I'm great. It was just I was doing it all the time, and I was starting to play gigs, and I was starting to play in a different stuff. And I didn't want to get burnt out on music. And I think maybe subconsciously I was like, well, I, I like the guitar and I want to kind of learn how to do that. And so I did. And I had no intention at all. Never taken a lesson. Never, like, I would, you know, see things my dad would do and I would try to mimic things I heard him play. But I never intended to ever make a dollar playing guitar. Ever. And when I moved to Nashville, I moved here to be a drummer. I had guitar stuff, I loved guitar, but I was like, there's no way, no way I'm gonna make a dollar. By the time I realized I could make money playing guitar, I still moved here as a drummer because I was like, there's no freaking way. How did you make the decision to move to Nashville? Um, I was working in a recording studio in Kansas City and I had a lot of buddies that had moved here. Uh, a dear friend of mine that actually grew up a block away from me in Kansas City, Missouri, his name is Evan Weatherford. He plays guitar for Little Big Town. His folks were in my folks' wedding and vice versa. His dad and my dad played in bands for years. Evan would come over to my house and we'd jam on Nirvana tunes because he played guitar from a young age. And he had moved and had success and that, that was attractive to me. And so that was like, it was tangible. I was like, I can see that. And that, that seems like the move. Um, I also loved 90s country music. Marty Stewart, Leroy Parnell, uh, Brooks and Dunn, uh, Radney Foster. All that stuff was Steve Warner. Just grew up wearing those records out. Eddie, you know, learned all Eddie Bayer's and Paul Lyme's parts. Yeah. And then, you know, as I started playing guitar, learning, you know, um, JT's parts and Brent's parts, trying to fuss my way around those. And so it was like 2010, and I'll be honest, like I wanted to move two years prior and I was too scared. I was scared to death and I had just enough going on in Kansas City to be comfortable. And I didn't have the confidence at all to move. And I gave myself a date, and I was like, by October, if nothing's happening, I'll move. And I still was dragging my feet, so my, I got done mowing the lawn one day, or my dad was mowing the lawn. One of us, 
we had a talk in the driveway, and he did me the best service he's ever done. He goes, we're kicking you out of the house. He goes, <laughs> you, you don't have to leave Kansas City, but you're not staying here. He goes, you've been talking about this forever. We're tired of hearing you talk about it. Either do it or don't. But you're 24 years old. Figure it out. And he meant it out of love. And, yeah. and it just was like, oh, well, I guess I'm going to Nashville. Yeah, that's, that's a tough thing, uh, but, the, but the right thing. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's a gift. But uh, yeah, how did you take it? It was great uh, because he wasn't angry. Yeah. He wanted to move to Nashville and do that. And he went a different route, which uh, was an awesome route for him to go. And he didn't want me to make the same, I, I don't want to call it a mistake. He knew, he saw something I didn't, I think. And he was like, you need to go, like go do it. Uh, and I was scared of failing not realizing that just moving is actually succeeding, you know? And like just managing your expectations and celebrating the little wins along the way keeps it going. Yeah. When you decide to move to Nashville, did yeah. you have, you weren't coming here for a gig or anything. No. I mean, you're, you're coming here, you don't have a, I mean, did you have a place to stay or anything? I mean, you, so, you just show up? One of the things I did do for myself, out of pure passion, but it would come to be a really great thing was, uh, as I started discovering who the current players were in Nashville, uh, you know, as we all have, like, I, I found out who Tom Bukovac was because I loved those Keith Urban records. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't drawn to the lead work. It was great, but the rhythm playing was just like, wow. And, like, the background parts were so special and beautiful. So, you know, upon research, I'm like, who's this guy that's mm -hmm. playing on everything? Well, I found out he was playing with Dave Bahanish at 3rd and Lindsley all the time. So my buddy Ben and I got in our Ford Explorer and I drove to Nashville to see him play. I just didn't think anything of it. I was like, I'll drive nine hours. I want to go, like, I might move to Nashville. I'm going to go. And I bought him a beer and he gave me his number. And over the next year, he would randomly just text me out of the blue and be like, hey, man, when are you moving? Hey, man, it's not going to happen in Kansas City. Just randomly. like just. <laughs> and I'm like, why are you texting me right now? And uh, at that same time, I had come down and auditioned on drums for a band at the recommendation of my buddy Brandon. Uh, and I met Brian Bonds, who would be the, become the original guitar player of Florida Georgia Line, and an, a bass player named Freddie Marsh. And when I moved to Nashville, I contacted Brian. I'm like, hey, I'm here. You know, Tom was doing his own thing. I'm not about to contact Tom and be like, hey, man. Yeah. Uh, but Brian and I got along really well. And so... Uh, we just started hanging out. He loved cigars. I enjoyed cigars. We would just go sit and became buds. And that would open every door for me that led to where I'd, you know, led to where I would be now. You were the drummer for Love and Theft. Yeah. For a little <laughs> while. Yeah, right? That's crazy. And because uh, that, that's what, uh, I think that's what you were doing when, uh, when we first yes, met. Yes, it was. Uh, and could, because you and, and Brian came by the office. Yeah, here. Brian was playing guitar. Yeah, and that was, yeah. I think that was 2010. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you're playing drums, but then you're also, you're also continuing to work on, on guitar. Yeah. And, um, I moved here, and some friends of mine hooked me up with a guy named Glenn Templeton, who is an artist here, and I, I played guitar with him for a moment. And oh, I'm trying to think of the timeline that got me to the love and theft thing. I was playing with Glenn, and then Brian called, and FGL was going on this thing called the Best Damn Country Tour. <laughs> oh, man. Where it was 
three artists sharing one band on one bus. Right. So there were 12 or 13 people on one bus. Yes. Just packed in like sardines. And the headliners would rotate. So we had to learn this massive stockpile of music, but I played ganjo and guitar and sang. And that would be my intro into FGL. Yeah. And at that time, uh, Tyler, one of the two artists, was still detailing cars, and PK was writing songs and hanging out, and I don't know what he was doing for work at the time. But we would travel around in Tyler's like Tahoe outside of that tour and do little gigs. That tour ended, and then Brian got the call to play guitar for Love and Theft. Um, and he did a, a yearly family vacation that was like a non-negotiable thing for him, no matter what he was doing. So he called me to fill in on guitar. So I actually played guitar with Love and Theft first. Uh, and it was a good hang. We all got along great. I loved the parts, and it was fun. And, and I fortunately, I did really well. Uh, and we had a good time. When the drum spot came open, Brian kind of went to bat for me, and he was like, guys, I know this will sound crazy. Have Tyler come in for a day and play drums. And so I did, and I got the gig, uh, and I played drums with Love and Theft for, I don't know, six, seven months. And uh, Brian went back to FGL, which would prove to be a great move for him. And then I got fired from my first gig. <laughs> I got canned. And <laughs> what it was, happened? Man, I was way too into my gig and endorsements, and that was my side of it. It, it was like, or that was the, my, that thing I had to take ownership of was like, I was so into having my first label gig and, and being there and, and whatnot. And um, I actually became band leader on that gig. And it was Jason Jordan, myself, and my buddy Josh Gleave. And they had the opportunity to get a different bass player from a different genre um, who came in. And she was awesome. Her name was Alana. Killer bass player. But her and I did not play well together at all. Because uh, I was a meat and potatoes drummer. That's what I did. And she was an incredibly advanced bass player and she played the parts great we just didn't have a good you know a good thing we we got along great we i just didn't play well with her and so i got fired which is great i mean at the time it was terrible yeah um but yeah i just it, i'm really glad that happened for a myriad of reasons but you know yeah what, what were you what did you learn from that? <clears throat> uh a to not take myself too seriously you know I think maybe everyone moves here with these ideas of what it's going to be like. And that definitely knocked me down to be like, all right, get to work. Like, you know, I remember picking up Chad Jeffers' book, 25 Notes for the Successful Musician, yeah. shortly after that and read it. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to be a statistic and get back up. And then I start talking to other people and they're like, well, yeah, I've gotten fired and I've gotten fired. And yeah, man, welcome to Nashville. Yeah. Um, and it was the biggest blessing because I would move on and play with... Uh, some of my favorite people I've ever played with after that. I played with this guy named Logan Mize, uh, which is where I started doing studio work. Uh, that led to Florida Georgia Line for, this would have been my seventh year. And that led to playing with a million different artists and getting to really find my passion and what I like to do. So if you had to, uh, if you had to distill down one moment that really changed the trajectory you know, of your career? Mm. What, what would that be? <clears throat> when would that be? Uh, it was, I think it was like three years ago. Tyler and BK, the principal artist for FGL, started a publishing company called Tree Vibes Music. And I don't know if anybody else had done this before, but it was freaking genius. They, they rented another bus from Diamond Coach, and they set up a demo studio in the back and a demo studio in the front. 
and they would bring out all the writers that they wrote with. I mean, we're talking big writers, like Rodney Clausen. Um, of course, now I'm saying that names are saving. Corey Crowder, Jordan Schmidt, Sarah Buxton, Carrie Barlow, like big writers. Yeah. And what they wanted to do, they were like, well, we have all this time on the road mm-hmm. that we're just, you know, fussing around. Let's make use of it. Like, let's make use of all the time on the road so when we're home, we can be home or do other adventures. So they'd start writing all these freaking hit songs. And those songs need a guitar. And for the longest time, like, you know, demos like that, they don't need, you know, all these crazy guitar parts. But I'll never forget one day Daniel Ross, who was one of the writers, was like, hey, Ty, my nickname on the road was Taco. He's like, hey, Taco, can you come up to the bus? Bring an electric and your dobro. It's like, yeah, sure. Had me cut a demo, and at that same time, Jordan Schmidt from the back of the bus came up to get something to go to the bathroom. He just kind of stood there, and he was like, oh, man. Hey, do you want to come to the back when you're done? And for the next few years until I left, every day at 3 or 4 o'clock, hey, man, we're ready for you. Here's the key of the song. Here's what we need. And it was this beautiful, it was this beautiful opportunity and, and a relatively low-pressure scenario to learn how to play guitar on songs and to learn how to create and stay out of the way, and to get to learn from these incredible songwriters, you know, what sticks on stuff like that. So you went to studio school. Yeah, 100%. And, and, you were, and, you were, and you were being paid the whole time yeah. to go to school. Yeah. So just to, to back up a little bit, so, you know, of course, you came on, you know, the FGL gig, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, first you were the rhythm guitarist, then you know. Then you became eventually became lead guitarist yeah. and band leader. Yeah. And so when you're playing on you know award shows and TV shows and mm-hmm. all these you know big concerts, so you're getting all of that experience <clears throat> that you learned from yeah. from them. But then this is a whole other level of of uh, of school that you're able to go to. Yeah. And that you were being you know paid to do it. Yeah. And yeah. and it was it was continual. And what was great about it is. It got to the point where we were doing four to five songs a day at certain times because they would just get up and write. Like the beauty of that bus on the road was there weren't set writing times. There'd be a schedule of who's writing with who. But I mean, they were always writing, always writing. And, you know, it had to come up and think quick and get out of the way. You know, yeah. not unlike a Nashville session in that way. But yeah, it was, I never thought about it like that. It was total school. Yeah, because I mean, you're, you're playing gigs. And during the day, you're you're playing on sessions, and you're working with these <clears throat> these writers that I'm sure have had their songs, you know, been professionally demoed oh, for yeah. years, and they kind of know what to ask for by that. Hopefully, mm-hmm. they know what to ask yes. for by that point. And and so you're getting you know input, and they're they're telling you. I'm sure maybe they were telling you, you know, stop playing so much. <laughs> One, oh, 100%. What kind of, what, yeah, what kind of input were they giving you? Well, at first it was like, all right, let's lather this thing up with guitars. Okay. Well, and then I would start to learn as I, you know, got less green was, especially those demos, you don't want them to be prettied up because then the producer or the artist cutting them, you know, you want it to be enough of a blank canvas that they can hear the song, not the parts and the production. Right. So I had to get really creative with, you know, hooks and sounds. So that was a big one. Uh, this is gonna sound silly, but intonation, playing in tune. Mm. Uh, the big one, I, I mean, I don't know how many other people do do session struggle with this, but remembering what I played, because so many times they wanted doubles of stuff, exact doubles. Yes. You know, Especially with the type of music that FGL did, 
everything's a left-right to a certain extent. Uh, and I'm a fairly emotional player, like I play in the moment. Um, I'm not as calculated, so that that was that was something that was a learned trait. And just staying creative, learning to constantly stay on top of new sounds, new inspiration, not play the same thing, because after a while, those songs start to sound the same. Not because they're writing the same song, right? But you know, you want to pay each artist, you know, the time and the respect of like putting in the time to that song. So, so it doesn't just sound like, oh, that's another, oh, that's another thing Tyler played on. One hundred percent. Yeah, because as much as you kind of want to have a signature, at the same time you don't, because no. then it's just then it's just like, yeah. well, there's Tyler again playing similar intro to what he played on this. Exactly. Other song. Yeah. So when you were coming up with hooks, I mean, what helped you come up with hooks? Uh, you know, a couple you know, like fussing with tunings. I noticed Elia played on a lot of the FGL stuff. And we would have to do the track re-records for the union sanctions. So I would get all these, the other part of the schooling was I would get all these record stems from mm -hmm. Joey Moy, their producer, the actual stems from the record, and I could dissect every one of them, sit at my home studio, and have to replay them note for note, sound for sound. That was the thing that helped me come up with hooks. Okay. Now, just so people understand, yeah. you were doing track re-records, so e explain that. <clears throat> so... In 99% of the shows people see, uh, along with the band on stage, there will be some type of supplemental tracks being played from a computer and an audio device. Right. Um, there are union rules that have been set up to protect session players uh, so that people aren't just taking those parts and making money off them night after night. Because if you think about it, every track being played is a salary that's being saved by the artist. Yes. Uh, and so at a certain point a few years ago, session players and the union started kind of standing up and going, hey, like, let's make a compromise. Well, the artists at that point could make the decision whether to pay the dues or have the tracks re-recorded off the card mm -hmm. for a one-time fee that was agreed upon by both parties. Well, that's what FGL did. I'll never forget getting pulled into the office and they were like, hey, uh, we want to go the route of just re-recording the tracks. Can you make that happen? Yeah, sure. I know exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> and I had just gotten a Pro Tools rig, and um, that's where I learned how to use Pro Tools and do demos at home. And, you know, started learning about tones and started learning about placement of things and hooks and, and whatnot. Because I'm sitting here literally with, like, every FGL hit and the yeah, actual okay. separated stems from the record going, that guitar part sounds terrible by itself. Yeah. Oh, that's why because it sounds amazing shelved with everything else. You know, the records I grew up listening to didn't have a third of the instrumentation they do now. Right. So things were much more open and big. Well, they're getting condensed down now. Now different sounds and pedals coming out. It's like, oh, that was a guitar that played that? I thought it was a synthesizer. Yeah. You know, I had to get, get up really quick to what was going on because it had to be delivered and it had to sound identical. Uh, and not to take it too seriously, but I took it seriously because I realized it wasn't lost on me how special it was that I got to have those stems and go through that because it was teaching me everything I would then learn the first time Joey Moy called me in to play on something when he saw that I had an interest in doing it. I had already gone to Joey's school of guitar. Right. You know. Because you had heard all the tracks yeah. that other guitar players had yeah. played. Derek Wells, yeah. Bukovac, Adam Schoenfeld, Elia, all those guys had played on that. <clears throat> and I had, a, a you know a course that I had studied. And so I took that onto that bus every day. And just, you know, 
constantly getting new gags, practicing the dumbest stuff, like intonation and bends, like, yeah. it, it, you know, and it, it, the grace that was there to keep learning. Let's talk about two things you just mentioned. Let's talk about intonation, and let's also talk about gags. Yeah, man. <laughs> so, yeah. So, tell, you know, kind of drill down more on intonation. Uh, bending up to a note, you know, just yeah. like, uh, you know. You know, when to have uh, vibrato. Tom and I had this conversation the other night. He was like, you know what makes a guitar sound important? He goes, when vibrato is engaged and when it's not, and at what point during a bend you introduce vibrato. Oh. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. Like some of the greatest guitar players have nailed that down and that's part of their thumbprint. Like when you hear Mike Campbell play slide and the way he vibratos and yeah. different guys like that. So just, you know, I would hear back these things I'd play on and be like, oh man, like this is a magnifying glass, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, tuning, making sure my guitars were set up well. Thank goodness I had an amazing tech out on the road with FGL. So I wouldn't bring separate stuff. I'd literally go to my guitar vault and pull out what I needed. Uh, and so that was a blessing. Uh, I never played dobro before until um, FGL started introducing dobro songs and that would become my role. So working on intonation on that instrument and just learning how to navigate it with yeah. the slide. And again, and this is this is standard slide dobro, not, yeah. not round neck. Correct, doing yeah, square, square neck. neck. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then the gag thing, I noticed a lot, um, there were a lot of really esoteric effects going on in the FGL stuff. And it would kind of start cycling through, and I'd start to kind of hear things over and over again and just make sure to ask questions and find, you know, realize, oh, that's the Strymon Mobius on the destroyer setting. It sounds like this crazy filter. Or that's the Eventide H9, you know, and just learning about that stuff, getting it, diving into it. You know, gags referring to non-traditional guitar parts okay. with hooks on them. You know, yeah. it's simple as, you know, the EQ pedal being shelved a certain way. Just stuff to make it sit in the mix so when it pops out on the radio, people go, that's different. You know, little earworms, as I've heard them called before, that just kind of get stuck and you can't get it out of your head. Yeah. So, yeah, just becoming less of a guitar player and more of a musician. And that time really helped me become less of a guitar player. Because the stuff I grew up on was guitar. You know, plug a guitar into an amp and guitar solos. And now I try to, unless the song calls for a solo, it's like, my goal is, can you sing it back? Like, when they hear the solo, is it something that they can sing back? Or does it have a hook that relates to the vocal? Yeah. So... And hanging out with a bunch of songwriters will make that happen real fast. Yeah. Hey, man, can you make that solo more hooky? Yeah. Hey, like, here's the, here's, just play the hook, you know, of the, the vocal. Melody. Yeah. yeah, melody. Let's make it, you know, let's make it not vanilla, but for demo purposes. And then I started to realize after a while that that's actually really easily digestible and pleasant for a lot of songs.
So you've had this amazing opportunity where you're, you know, you've kind of gone to school, and then recently you decided. So just what two Mondays? Yeah, ago, two Mondays ago, man. <laughs> you you gave you gave yeah, that was so your thanks last for the week. opportunity. I'm out. <laughs> so how, how did the how did the guys react? Man, yeah. it uh, it was the most special thing ever, really. Um, got I, I called them on a conference call because they were abound to different jaunts in different areas. And uh, we just had a great conversation. I was just honest, man. I shared my heart. I was like, listen, I moved here in the hopes of one day playing on sessions. Uh, you guys have given me the opportunity to cultivate that. You've watched it. And it's time for me to go put all of my energy into that. And this part sounds cheesy, but I really meant it at the end of the day. And that was like, they deserve to have a young guy there that wants to do that. And a young guy deserves to be there and have that opportunity. And man, this would have been my seventh year. And that's, what a better way to go out. It was the best year we had had, that Can't Say I Ain't Country Tour. It was the most fun, successful. They broke a bunch of attendance records and we did a Las Vegas residency and played a whole bunch of TV shows. And uh, all of that led me to go, oh, I wanna go out on top. And they were so supportive and excited, and there was not any bit of animosity. And actually, uh, the irony is like I, I waited all week to like wake up and go, ooh, what did I do? And I actually got a couple of calls for big gigs that week from other artists that just randomly, it's that time of year. Okay. And I was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm doing this thing. Uh, and I will do gigs with other people this year. Uh, a band called Runaway June that I work with a lot. I'll be out with them working a little bit because I got a supplement. You know, I'm not full time by any means. Uh, very few people are with the way the music industry is. But that following Sunday, I found myself in the recording studio with FGL working on a Justin Bieber track that they're featured on. Wow. And they needed to country it up a little bit. So here I come, you know, the Sunday following quitting. And Zach, we had like the most fun we've had in years. It was, there was, there, it was just a new, and I think it was just myself. I just felt so free to be myself and to just not worry about the employer-employee relationship. That's one thing I always tried to stay really conscious of is, yeah, we're friends, but I'm an employee of. So in this creative aspect where I want to be vocal and when necessary, there's always a little bit of, uh, what if I disagree on what we're doing, but then I got to get on stage with you tonight but I'm just trying to help the project. And uh, it never created an issue, but I always tried to be cognizant of it. And man, we got in there and just recorded. And like, it was so, uh, the, the word is escaping me right now, but uh, collaborative, there we go. It was a collaboration. And it was like, wow. And the whole time they were just like, dude, like you're doing it. Isn't it funny how God works? Like, here we are. So that was like the closing the book on a chapter, man. So now, uh, you know, you've, you've kind of, you know, you've already built up some relationships. Mm. You know, while you were out, out on the road still with FGL, you know, of course you were, you were playing on these demos for songwriters. Yeah. And also you were getting, you, you were starting to get some, some calls to, yeah. to play on, on sessions too. Yeah, man. And um, then, and then uh, you know, the way things work is hopefully that uh, you get you know, referred by other people on the session. Yeah, which is starting to happen, which led me to wanting to step out of the FGL role 
and be, you know, the session guy, put that hat on, um, you know, and really try to step into that role. I mean, my peers, I call them my peers, the guys that I look up to and the other guys that are doing it all the time. It's such a cool community. You know, it's not competitive. It is, but it's not. Um, Derek Wells has been a huge mentor. Tom has been, Bukovac's been a huge mentor. Um, yeah, and I've, I've had the opportunity this year to play on some stuff that's just crazy. Where I look back at the year and I'm like, wow, I can't believe I got to do that. From uh, some of the past you know, guests on the True Tone Lounge, it's interesting hearing them say that to get started as a session player, basically they had to be ready every morning, mm-hmm. uh, hoping that someone didn't show up so they would get that last minute call because yeah. that's kind of what you what you have to yeah. <laughs> hope for. It's really funny, man. Um, I quit FGL with like one session on the books. Like my year is not filled up with, with sessions, but my entire, my very little baby session career I've had so far has been, hey, someone can't show up. Mm-hmm. Hey, someone got a master, can you come to this demo? Yes. Elia calling me, hey, can you be at Benchmark tomorrow too? Uh, and a lot of it has been, my biggest things I've recorded on this year, I think only one of them was done in a studio. It's like, hey, we just wrote this song, can I send it to you, it needs guitars. And I sit in my home studio, and the next thing I know, uh, it's a Thomas Rhett track, or a Low Cash track, or you know, some of the Hardy stuff I did. You know, um, I, I, I played on the Thomas Rhett record. I cut those guitars in a motel, not a hotel, a motel in the middle of California at a state fair. <laughs> it was a demo. And I just spent, like, the song was inspiring, and I spent all afternoon on it, and I got an email two, two months later from Jesse Frazier, who was co-produced it with Dan Huff. He's like, hey, man, like, we're actually gonna use some of your guitars. Like, we're sitting here in the studio, like, good job. Like, you're getting upgraded. And that's how it happens. And then, you, yeah. you know, it's, it's exactly what you said. It's like those mind-blowing things where you're like, you never know what something's gonna turn into, so always treat it like a master, always, yeah, always. So, so, you know, in, in the beginning, you know, you're kind of, you're the guy that's that's ready at the last second because someone else doesn't show up yeah. or someone else gets sick or what have you, yeah. and then people start asking for you. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, and that that's happened a couple of times. I have a couple of producers in town that I work on their accounts where that was the thing. They, they yeah. enjoyed what I did and they enjoyed the hang and, you know, it's kind of the same band that shows up every time for their different artists, and it's like it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And and to hit on something that you that you kind of you know, you know breeze by, but but there's also this aspect to where you have to be able to do a certain amount of engineering yourself. Yes, because you're getting sent tracks, mm-hmm. and so that's one thing that the guys need to know that are that are kind of coming up is that yeah. there's this whole expectation of you're not just a guitar player. No. But you're also your own kind of engineer yeah. slash kind of secondary producer. That's exactly and, right. And so because people are going to send you tracks, yeah. and you're going to have to use your own judgment, yes. which that's where you kind of get that producer hat kind of thing that you oh, kind yeah. of wear. And then you've got to be able to get good sounds mm-hmm. on, you know, we would say to tape, but to yeah. you know, to the track. Yeah, and your uh, digital audio yes. workstation. Yes, <laughs> yes. And so there's that whole other aspect that yeah, people man. really need to be honing 
yeah. as far as their skill set is that they need to be able to, uh, you know, just get get some good sounds. Yeah, I equate know? it to you can't be a drummer in Nashville anymore. You have to be a tracks operator. You have to know how to use Logic or Ableton because you will be the guy running the tracks for your live show. Yeah. And it's the same with guitar players that have any desire, not even any desire, the guitar players that want to be asked to do that, that's almost a prerequisite now. Yeah. You know, have some sort of way to record and get stuff back to people. Yeah. So, in what you just said, I was r reminded of your, you know, career as a drummer. How did, uh, how did drumming influence your guitar playing? Or just uh, yourself as a musician? Yeah, yeah, the way I interpret rhythms. Yeah. Uh, one of the best compliments I ever got in my entire life was from a drummer on a session being like, man, you lay back. He goes, you don't rush anything, man. And almost to a fault, probably, because that was how I played drums, too. I was always kind of behind the click. Uh, but that never left me. I appreciated that. It was That was probably the biggest thing that helped me realize that, like, man, drumming has played yeah. a big part in, like, my right-hand ability to lock in with rhythm parts. advice would you give to the Ooh. young guitar player or musician who's who's wanting to move to Nashville and you know things they should do shouldn't do you know let's let's pass on some wisdom yeah um, go get out and about and make friends but not just friends make relationships yeah when I moved here I thought a lot had to was I thought it was a lot more mechanical in the sense of like well, I'll meet these people and I play guitar and drums you need guitar and drums? Well, it's perfect. What I'm realizing is, as I started to like get out of my own head and my own ego and just kind of start to look around, it's all about relationships. Even more so than your, your aptitude to play. It was about, you know, we were talking about off camera, just the hang factor, the, you know, showing up, being willing <clears throat> to do it. You know, most of the people moving here are capable of the requirements. So it's about going out and making the relationships. Uh, for me, it was working for free a lot. You know, meeting songwriters, meeting artists, offering to do a couple of things on spec. Uh, I teched for a minute, and not, but not going out on the road teching. But I would come in and like drum tech, and I'd re help buddies rehearse. Devin Malone, Devo, used both Hunter Hayes, and their drummer Steve Sinatra. I met them, and they're like, "Dude, come to Hunter's rehearsals. Like, we'll pay you a hundred bucks." schlep gear, but what that allowed me to do is sit around in the background and watch a full rehearsal go down, you know, the communication with artists and stuff like that, and, you know, that was that was worth way more than a hundred bucks. Um, yeah, don't be below anything. 
and don't take things personally because it is the service industry. Unless you are going to be an artist, you're in the you're in the service industry. So let things roll off. Like I still struggle sometimes if I execute something I think is great. You're like that was cool. Not at all what we were looking for. We're like, hey, that part was cool. Let's go this direction. Uh, you can't take that stuff personally. It's yeah. not. It's not personal. It's you know we're all here for the art. And it is a business. And hopefully you can take it as a challenge of, yeah. okay, you just came up with some part, but, oh, well, I can come up with another one, mm -hmm. or I've got something else in my quiver that I can you know, pull out. Absolutely, you and know. you know, just being versatile. And in those moments, being completely willing to go there with those people. Yeah. You know, completely willing. I'm assuming a lot of, uh, especially songwriters, and maybe producers are this way too, they're going to say, Give me something like so and so. So yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's a certain amount of you have to be aware of what's going on musically, both in the past and also what's going on presently to a certain degree. Completely. Uh, being a Rolodex of parts, you know, uh, 90s country is coming back a little bit and a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, which I love. It's what I grew up on. But being able to pull from that, you know, being able to play slide, being able to play a few different instruments for anybody wanting to do the session thing. I'm learning really helps because it's less time they have to take contacting different people. Uh, and just knowing the vocabulary of those instruments and the sounds well enough to be able to get into the ballpark and be confident when executing it. You know, like I've learned in this town, no one is sure until someone is sure. <laughs> so, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But for a while, I, re I remember being really timid until I, I remember being on a session. It was one of my first sessions with a particular producer who was also an unbelievable engineer. Well, when we were in the session, he's gathering a bunch of data. He's engineering, he's gathering a bunch of data, he'll go through it. But that means that there wasn't necessarily somebody going, all right, let's try this, let's do this. And so it was kind of an opportunity to be really aware of the room, not just step up and take the ball, but to be really aware of the room and just go like, hey, let's try this or let's do this. And then, then someone is leading, um, and finding those moments to to be confident because that makes the people around you feel confident, makes the artist feel confident, makes the engineer, the producer feel confident. And I've found that I get some callbacks because of just, you know, being confident in what you're doing and, in, and loving it and investing in it. So. What are some things you've learned on sessions from other musicians? Maybe you know, maybe from <laughs> other guitar players, or you know, both good and bad. Uh, how to dial in your cue, your mix. Uh, that probably sounds so silly, uh, but it took me because I did the stu the road thing on the in the studios on the road. We were talking about on the bus in the bus studio on the road. Pardon me. Yes. You know I'm. That's all kind of dialed in for me. So I remember my first few dates of just kind of getting thrown into these big situations. You know, I'd kind of put my parts on, you know, and then I started realizing I'd go in and listen and be like, man, I'm stepping all over so-and-so, or man, that was terrible. Uh, learning how to pick spots and learning that not every song's a guitar song mm -hmm. <clears throat> in a guitar town. You know, that th this is not the instrument anymore necessarily for a lot of things. Uh, and so being really aware of that, leaving space, communicating. Um, I was talking uh, with a steel player yesterday 
it was Bruce Bowden. We were talking about those old Brooks and Dunn records, and I was telling him how much I appreciated, how much thought went into the different parts. And he said, we talked a lot about those parts. He goes, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to pass it off to you when we go into this point. And he called them stress points of a song. Wow. And I was like, holy cow. Yeah. He goes, you know the tension points. Like, how do you create the tension? It's a story. And he goes, we spent a lot of time talking about that, and which means you really had to listen and pick up on what someone else is playing, which you would think would be common, but in my position of being super new and just like trying to fit in, by the time you're there in the chair and you start recording, you're like, okay, what's going on around me? Yeah. Uh, and that's been the biggest thing that I've enjoyed learning the past year. Getting thrown into those situations more is, is uh, yeah, listening, which sounds so elementary. But I've also been on a lot of sessions where people aren't, and we're just throwing pain at the wall. And, and uh, I'm learning that the players have a lot of control over that. You know, it's not just the producer and everybody in the room, you know, but it's strategically painting. Especially playing with steel players, because that's not an instrument that's on every session anymore. I remember playing uh, with Justin Shipper for the first time, and he has taken me under his wing a little bit and mentored me about, like, you know, maneuvering around those instruments that a lot of us young guys, until you get here and start playing, you know, I didn't grow up playing with a steel player. Yeah. Uh, just picking your register, staying out of the way and making it count. A lot of it seems to be also be being teachable. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Having the humility to, uh, you know, to take input from a... a from another player. Yeah, because you know. none of it's meant maliciously. Yeah. Like, you're, we're all there for a reason, you know, and, and that was, like, that's kind of what helped, like, me enjoy it, is to be like, oh, I'm here for a reason. Yeah. So let's learn, you know, and so many people have been so awesome in mentoring, and so many relationships and friendships have come out of that, you know, uh, that are crazy. People that were, like, heroes are now friends. And, you know, music brought it all together. And now to get to sit in the studio with those people and learn and see them get excited. Like when, when you know, I, some of my most special moments have been some of my heroes. Like I'll never forget the first time I played at Jimmy Lee Slos. Mm -hmm. And, you know, referencing back to those Keith Urban records. And then, God, some of the bass playing on those records is more important than guitar playing. Yeah. I'll never forget sitting across from him in the studio and just being like, <laughs> oh, my gosh. And then you'd get done and be like, man, that was great. And you're like, whoa. You know, that stuff isn't taken lightly. And I think the other thing that is a big part of advice is always celebrate the wins. Be hum with humility. But those are big deals. And those kind of help keep you humble. You know, because it could be a million different people sitting in that chair. But when those things happen, that kind of, that keeps me going and being like, all right, let's get up tomorrow and do it again. <laughs>
Tyler, let's talk gear. Let's talk gear. Yeah. So we first we have to talk about this 335. Yeah, man. So this this is a impressive relic. Yeah, somebody um, <laughs> forgot it came in a case. I think. No, man. Uh, this that's, that's a 59. It is a 59 335. She's got a, some excuses, but uh, it's part of what I love about it. Um, I love 335s. This is my first like actual vintage. I have some other vintage guitars, but this is the oldest vintage, and like one that's been the biggest dream for a long time, that I'm currently in the middle of purchasing from uh, a sweet, sweet friend of mine, Ford Thurston, who had three of these that he's selling. He had a 64, a 63, and this 59. Wow. Uh, the 64 was a non-Bigsby one, which is pretty rare for that year. And then the Clapton thing. Most of those had Bigsby's. Uh, all original. And he allowed me to take all of them. He was traveling for a long time. He goes, man, before you get into this game, why don't you just take these and try them? See if you want to drop that kind of money and yeah. get into this. And if not, you can have some fun, and that's fine. And I, I'll never forget, I went over to his house, and they were all three out. Uh, and this was before Christmas, a few months ago. And they were all three out, and I could see all of them. And I was like, oh, the cherry red one, it's 335, like, that's the guitar. Picked it up, it was cool. And then he had me plug each of them in to his amp. And I left, and I kept thinking about this guitar. But it's the one that had some excuses, and I'm like, ah, I don't really want to invest in that instrument. Yeah. You know? And I called him the next day. I'm like, dude, I couldn't even sleep last night. Like, can I come grab the 59? He goes, yeah, yeah. And um, played it. Uh, I got called to play on, I was very fortunate to get called to play on the new El King record. And it's this guitar minus uh, that Jeff Centelli for one song. And then if it needed, you know, any other stuff like a baritone or 12 string. Uh, and there's just something really inspiring about it. And uh, I, then I took his 63 and tried it. He thought he was gonna keep this for a minute. Thought I had backed out of it at one point because I got scared about, you know, the, the upper bout of this headstock had been broken off and re-glued, the tuners changed. PAFs are there. Uh, part of the serial number is missing inside. I don't know if it was stolen at one point or not, but yeah. just stuff that's like, that's, you know. It's got issues. It's got issues, Yeah. but man. All I know is there's some there's a connection with this instrument, and I took the other two back. This guitar was technically almost sold to a mutual buddy of ours, and he called me, and he was like, hey, man, the guy backed out. I'm going to bring it back to you. And it was like, yes. <laughs> and I got it back. Uh, this is the factory Bigsby minus somebody put a new arm on here. Okay. But what's cool about this particular instrument is it came also with the stop tail, and in the case over there is the original nickel Stop tail, and I actually only put this Bigsby on yesterday because I wanted to use it, mm -hmm. and it stayed in tune great. And I actually kind of like the fluffiness and airiness of it. But uh, yeah, man, I'm so fortunate to have this instrument. It's one I've wanted for a long time, and the stuff I've gotten to use it on, uh, it speaks, and it smells good. <laughs> it smells like an old library. <laughs> yes. You know, every time you open the case. And the case is a crazy story, too. It almost looks like a reissue case. I did not know this. Yeah. Gibson, back in the day, would sell those with like, these protective bags mm -hmm. on the case. Well, people loved the way the case looked, right? So they wouldn't use yeah. the bag, so the cases get thrashed. Yeah. This guy used the frickin' bag. Yeah. So the case, you see the case and you're like, no way, that's an original case. But it is the original case. Yeah, it's very clean. And so, uh, I mean, obviously I'm not playing the case, but it's cool. 
you know, it's a cool part of part of the uh, the purchase, so to speak. But yeah, man, it's a good one. So while you've got that guitar and, and such, let's uh, let's also talk about your your pedal board now. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> that, now, this old this old thing. No, this pedal board makes me laugh because because uh, I'd I'd seen. Uh, a picture of this before posted by uh, Exact Tone. So yeah, they, they, they built this board built, yep. for... Uh, not for me. Not for you. So <laughs> who, who was it built for? Uh, it was built for Bukovac. This yeah. is his one of his boards. Um, when I got called for that El King stuff, I had not had XDS build my board yet. And so, you know, I had a pedal train board with a bunch of stuff on it. It worked. Uh, and it had <clears throat> some issues just because it's a homemade board. So I finally decided to have them just build me a board for my cartridge rig uh, that I keep. And I was just gonna leave it in there. And then I had another set of pedals set aside. I was gonna have them build a separate board for my dates with Runaway June this year. Um, so I thought I had my schedule planned out perfectly. So I take all my stuff over to Barry and Eric and Greg. And I'm like, you can keep it over Christmas. I don't need it. Two days later, uh, we get all the mixes for the first batch of El King stuff turned in, and they wanted a revision on the song, and it was a pretty hefty, like, let's redo the song. And I was like, <laughs> well, I could hodgepodge a bunch of stuff together. I don't know what to do. Uh, and Tom has become a good friend. And I just called him, like, hey, man, this is a crazy question. Can I rent a pedal board from you? And in Tom fashion, he's like, yeah, just bring over some beers and take a pedal board. So uh, this is the one I didn't, he just, Got one out, and this yeah. was the one he let me borrow and did the song. And minus a couple of things on here, this is kind of exactly what I was going to have XDS build. So he and I play this game called Hypothetical Gear. And uh, if there's something outlandish that's like there's no way, mm -hmm. let's be like, hey, man, hypothetical gear question. And we're like, yes or no? Yeah. And he said yes. And I said, this board's great, and I know you have a few. Would you ever want to sell it? It's actually what I need. Yeah. And I really like... The rats can vary quite a bit. The nobles stuff can vary quite a bit. Yes. Uh, and even these old GE 10s can vary quite a bit, and I like using those. But these were particularly good ones. And I was like, would you ever consider? He goes, make me an offer. And I made him an offer. And he goes, sold. I'll even throw in the case. And so I was like, <laughs> oh, man, uh, I wasn't expecting you to say yeah, but that just saved me some money and time getting another rig built. Uh, and truly, I'm really thankful he, he saved me. I was able to do my work, and it was super kind of him. Yeah, and uh, I got some cool, cool old and new pedals out of it. So, yeah, that's the humor of this board. Is it wasn't yeah. even built for me, but it's a lot of my taste. So it worked. Yeah, and so I, I will say that the uh, the power supply there is a One Spot Pro uh, CS12. <laughs> you can tell that, that story better than yeah. I can. So uh, ev evidently, uh, you know, Tom, you know, wanted it painted, and uh, and Barry convinced him to paint it gold so it'd be a gold brick. Yeah. So there you have the only, you know, golden CS12 <laughs> power supply. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Yeah. So well, this is well, yeah. fun. That's so it's cool. a it's a cool board. So you have your uh, so you have volume pedal. Uh, yeah. That's one of those that's um, modified. Justin Butler does yes. this. Yes. And what's great that everyone should know about that uses the Ernie Ball Jr is last year he figured out a way to make a steel band right? that's coated. And to, I, apparently, I mean, I've, I, I have not broken one yet, but apparently they have a lifetime warranty on them. 
So we don't have to fuss with changing this. Oh, God. Because that's, God that's the weak point on, on Ernie Ball volume pedals. And they're not easy to change. Strange. No, they're not. Um, so yeah, it, uh, it's great. It's got a buffer in it. Um, and that was the other reason this board was attractive, is I used those volumes on a couple other rigs I have, and I've just gotten really used to them. So yeah. it's cool. And, you know, this Boss old GE10 mm -hmm. you know, EQ, you got the, the diamond compressor, yeah. the RC booster, the venerable you know Boss EQ pedal that's great for gags and totally. all sorts of EQ tricks. Totally. You know, the, 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 the old Green Nobles ODR1 that, yeah. just like you said, they vary a lot. Yeah. They all sound like a Nobles. Yeah. But I don't like the ones that have a lot of bottom end. Yeah. And this one, uh, doesn't have very much bottom end in comparison. So immediately I was like, oh, this is a good one. This is a right. particularly good one. Because that's, even the newer ones have like a base cut mm -hmm. little switch on them now. Yeah. So then you have one of the older rats. Yeah, I've always loved those, those are great. It's a pre-LED. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah. but yet in a smaller box. It looks like a Keeley modified, Keely modified tremolo. The TR2, they do a little mod here, um, which is killer. You can, uh, it's latching. So you can get some pretty spacey effects with it. Oh, uh, and so now the, the, that mod is by XTS. Yeah, XTS yes. came up with that. Okay. And now they actually have released it. Okay. Show, show that real yeah. quick. Yeah. Let's get something dialed up here. Instead of having to hit it twice, yeah, it's, it's you're able to just yeah use momentary, it as momentary and wow. exactly, uh, and then you set it in the middle. And it's just your normal tremolo, but uh, yeah. yeah, that was all that was Tom's doing. I I like the Boss tremolos. I always have even before the mods. I just always felt like an ant to me. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I've gotten a kick out of using that a little bit. And the Dispatch Master. Yep. I, I used to use that back when I was playing with Logan Minus because I had to have a really small rig, mm -hmm. but a lot of his stuff was soundscapey stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I've always loved those Dispatch Masters. They're great. They're great. The reverb in them is just... Yeah, hit it. So, turn that off. You know. And the El Capistan, and then you have the... Uh Modified M9. My favorite pedal of all time. Why so? Uh, I just, it does so many things that I don't have to carry around separately. Yeah. Uh, it is, it condensed, the moment it came out, again, like the Dispatch Master when I was playing with Logan, and I didn't have the money to have a lot of gear. Um, that M9 came out and it was just, I could have so many things dialed up and pull off. And then when I started, you know, getting in with Logan would use us for a lot of demo stuff, I noticed I could pull things up on the fly. Yeah. And then it just, I never stopped using it. And I kind of looked around, I'm like, oh, a lot of other people are using this for the same purpose. Yeah. I bought the HX effects, I think it's great, but I went back to this because I'm a creature of habit. And uh, I know how to use it. And I, I think it sounds great. I really think it sounds great. And it, 
Uh, it has a lot of great delays and verbs yeah. and everything, and it's great for those things you mentioned, gags. Yes. Because you can program in these gags where it's you know wildly EQ'd and and with you know you know uh, echo that might be really dark or, or yep. that's phased or something like exactly. that. Exactly. So exactly, and, and you can hit those things you know very quickly and. And it's all about speed in the studio. It absolutely is. Pulling stuff up. I have a few things saved. I, I like the fuzzes in there, actually. Wow. I enjoy using the fuzzes quite a bit. The rotaries are great. Chorus is cool. The octave stuff tracks really well. I'll use that a ton. Uh, and the delays are fantastic. You've got a, another pedal off, off to the side here. It yes. looks like an S XTS. Yes, it's a new pedal they're about to come out with called the Edgefield that's been in the works for a couple years. And from the moment Greg showed it to me, I immediately related to it. Okay. I've always been a full drive fan and a Timmy fan. Um, you know, kind of the mid-heavy and just bit yet transparent thing. And from the moment I heard that pedal, I was like, that's it. And I'd, so I'd come in and play the prototypes and they'd show me all kinds of different stuff. And they finally got the enclosure, and this is the first one. It'll be coming out super soon. But, oh, yeah. Let's hear it. personally forget that it's on uh, and that's what I've enjoyed about it since I've played it it's just a good low gain low gain situation but with, yeah but with a little bit of a nose to it yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah. and this uh, reverb box from Ebo yes my sweet sweet he, he became Ebo became one of my absolute best friends we were both on uh, it was the FGL tour that Thomas read open for and Ebo played for Thomas and we went to Mike's music in Cincinnati one day and we walked because it wasn't that far, and we wanted to get out of the venue. And in that hour walk, we like became best buds, and have been thick as thieves ever since. But he makes an amp called the Del Rio, and they started out as his first amp he built, and then he started putting reverb in them. And the reverb was cooler than the amp, and I have the Del Rio still, and it's unbelievable. Yeah. But the reverbs were just, I, I, I Reverb, yeah. and I bugged him to build one forever, and he was like, no, man. And they were going to be super expensive, and it wasn't really worth it. Uh, and then he started working with Rich Robinson last year, and Rich had some needs that weren't met by other companies, and Ebo agreed to build one. And then Tom called one, called me one night, and he was like, he, he called, and I was like, hey, man, and he didn't say hey to anything. He's like, you'll never believe what I just played. The Everb. And I went out the next day and ordered one because it's like I've wanted that sound with so many different amps. Yeah. And now we have it. What's great about it, it's got an on-off switch, but it's got this idle or run switch. So it's cool. Make sure everything's off.
So that's just dry. What's great is you can goose, it's got a tube. You know? So you're still getting the gain stage. Still getting the gain stage. You know. Around noon is unity. And then. So that's a that's a tube tube re reverb, re unit. reverb unit. Yeah, yeah, and it does much more subtle stuff too. Yeah, but, like, yeah, but it, it definitely has more uh, flexibility than say a, a Fender. Yeah, uh, it's reverb much unit. warmer. It's yeah. got a bunch more bottom in the tone knob alone. It just kind of gets out of the way, but it's there. It's almost ducking in a way. Yeah. That's cool, man. I love it. I use it all the time. Let's uh, check out other guitars that you brought. Yeah. Here's one that gets used all the time. My trusty Jeff Sin Telecaster. The Pomona, I believe yeah. they call it. Yeah. Fr friend of the show. He was one on one of the first Lounge episodes. Yes, he was. And yeah, man, it's got uh, Lawler pickups in it. And uh, yeah. When I need a tally, it's my tally. Yeah. So, in today's studio environment, how much do you get asked to play, you know, what we like chicken pick or anything like that? I would um, think that would. Not often. There are times. What I'm finding. Uh, is it's almost like some of those parts are caricature parts in a song that doesn't sound country, they want it to sound country. Yeah. So you'll go, you'll swing the pendulum the opposite direction to create the situation. So there are things that I've had to get pretty, pretty country on. Okay. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, it's, it's a pretty rock based and definitely pop these days. Yeah. Definitely. So when you, music. when you pick up a tele, Telecaster, it's to do more Mike Campbell type things, or, yeah. or just, or, or just you know, more rock and roll type things. Rock and roll type things. Uh, EQ wise, staying out of the way a little bit more, just creating different parts. And I've gotten to the point. Uh, I, I do love gear, and I enjoy all these things are inspiring to me. But there was a time where gear played me more than I played the gear, hmm. and so um, there. There's a lot of days where I'll pick one amp and use it all day, just because I also think that's how records used to be made. You know, you didn't have guys back in the day changing out a ton of different amps. Sounds, yes, but, uh, you know, I remember being out at Ebo's house and Frankie Ballard's a sweet friend. 
And we were all having a great hang one day, and I was getting a Marshall worked on. We get done, and Ebo digs out a great old 412 and plugs it in, playing a little bit. And Frankie just stops. He goes, "Man, that's what a record sounds like. Like when people used to like get your buddy get an amp, and your other buddy had drums, and that's what you wrote songs around." Yeah. And since then, I've, I'll change an amp if it has to be, or a guitar if it has to be. Um, but if something's working, people are so parts based now that if you're getting great sounds, I'll use pedals to switch some stuff out and a couple guitars, but. Um, yeah, it's, it, I'll use what I'm using that I get sounds with that day, and I'm pretty slow to change unless it's needed, and then that's fine. Yeah. And then uh, you've got a Les Paul here. Yeah. Um, this covers my Les Paul needs. It started as an R9, and um, those typically have pretty big necks, and I've got a buddy who almost bought that 335 that... Um, owns a selection of 59, 58 and 59 Les Pauls, a lot of them. And when I was in Pittsburgh at a studio, I played all of them. What I noticed, they all had pretty small necks on them. Really comfortable small necks, almost like early 60s style. So. Yeah. Uh, Buddy had this Les Paul and I picked it up and he goes, it's an R9. I was like, there's no way, the neck is shaved down. And he goes, well, Doug Gerald at Rumble Seat uh, took some specs off of uh, some 59s that were in there and actually shaved the neck down, refinished it, uh, repainted the top. I don't know what the top looked like before, but it looks beautiful now, and relicked it. Uh, but what I loved about the guitar, somewhat in tune. Uh, what I also noticed about those old Les Pauls is the pickups were so light output, they almost sounded like single coils at times if they were really good, and if the coils hadn't drifted too much uh, to where they sounded nasally. You know, they had this beautiful, uh, really beautiful sound. A lot of those old bursts, you know, sound like, uh, sound like big Telecasters. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just an awesome guitar. It's not too heavy. That's good weight. It's yeah. Got a, got a stinger on the back. Which I think is actually the coolest yeah. thing about the guitar. That's, that's really yeah. cool. I like that. Yeah, but uh, no, he did a good job on it. Yeah, and, the, uh, the, that burst is really nice. It came with an actual 53 tailpiece. The owner that had it before put uh-huh. this tailpiece and just left it like that when I got it. I don't know how much that attributes to the tone, but I'm not mad about it. Yeah. So, yeah. And you've got a Tweed Deluxe back here. What year is this? It's a 59. Nice. Tweed Deluxe it has a vintage 30 in it. Great speaker. Yeah, which sounds cool in it. Um, yeah, and I enjoy playing that when I've got to take a, you know, if I'm not using that Del Rio. Yeah. This is a great amp. And I must also, I don't have them here today because a lot of them are in the locker, but uh, when I was with FGL, I used PRS guitars exclusively. Yeah. And I've never had a better relationship or a better instrument out on the road than those, and for seven years, that's all I played, primarily, and I still use those a lot when I record and, and stuff, but 
these have been the main three lately yeah. that what, I always use. Yeah. What's always your favorite PRS guitar? I have an old McCarty tremolo okay. back from like the David Grissom era when yeah. he started doing that. Uh, I went and did a factory visit and they let you pick out a guitar. And so I needed an acoustic, so I got an acoustic. And I had picked out an electric, I got a, a custom 22 and this charcoal black, beautiful. I, I have it and it's one of my favorite guitars. Um, and down in the, the, the shipping department, there was this beat up case, stickers all over it. And they, they happened to open it, they had just gotten it back from the band Dropkick Murphy, this like Celtic punk rock band. And it was beat <laughs> up and it looked awesome. And yeah. it was this 22 fret McCarty tremolo. And I'm a massive David Grissom fan and I was like, yeah. Bev, I did, and they were like, well we're gonna update it and send it back out, we're gonna update yeah. the tuners and the pickups, I said no. Yeah. I was like, I, if I have to pay for it, like, like, forget the other guitar I'm getting today. I want that just like it sits. That's a proper early McCarty tremolo. Yeah. And that guitar, that's the guitar I used every day on the Tree Vibes bus for the most part, unless I needed something down a whole step or whatever. Yeah. And man, that guitar, that guitar whips. So, yeah. Uh, it looks like you use a Dunlop... Uh Tordex picks the, yeah. the the yellow ones 70, 73 73 and, and then uh, string wise string wise uh, since I was a kid I played Diodario 10s yeah. 10 through uh, 1046 and that's Perfect. what Dad played and that's what goes on everything I use yeah. well Tyler thanks for coming out today man. thank yeah. you very much.